all right. Uh, well, good morning. For those that don't know me, uh, after that glowing introduction, I am Bruce Drugsma. I'm the community and connecting pastor here at Why Is That a Free? And it is my pleasure to share with you this morning that well-known Christmas passage from Numbers 24 of Balaam and his talking donkey. <laughs> I'm serious. So uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're actually going to go in there, which it's in Numbers. It's Numbers 22 is where I'm going to start. Just to warn you, it is not a well-known Christmas passage. I get the, the comedy there. Um, it's also a, but it's, but it's a great story from a great book of the Bible that has a terrible title. And to be really clear, Numbers is, is, is the third, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to nerd out a little bit on you right now, but it's the third title that that book of the Bible has had throughout history. All right. The first title was actually God Spoke. Uh, because they would take the first few words of the of the book and use that as the title. And the first few words are God spoke. The second title that they gave the book was In the Wilderness, therefore uh, e- explaining when the book took place, because the book takes place in the wilderness wanderings, between them leaving Egypt and prior to them arriving in the promised land. And then later on in history, and I won't get into how it happened, it involves Latin and Greek and all sorts of other things, uh, we ended up with numbers because somebody at some point decided that the best way to label this book is to take the five chapters out of 36 of the chapters in the entire book that focus on the census of Israel and title it that, which is a terrible name. And so I'm going to instead focus on the first name, God Spoke. Because I think that is a much more appropriate title for what we're going to talk about today. Because God spoke, and the word that is used in Hebrew, again, excuse me, is debar, which is better translated as God spoke or promised. And as we get into this series called Christmas Promises, we can take anything that God says to be true and therefore a promise. And so Numbers is really God's message to us this morning. So we're going to focus on Numbers 22, um, and we're going to look at the Balaam story. Now, for those of you that don't know the Balaam story, it falls at the end of the Israelites' 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? They leave Egypt under Moses, they get into the wilderness, they get up next to the promised land, and they're about to go in, and these spies go into the promised land, and they come back and they say, no chance, they're too big, they're too strong, and God says, I told you I had it, go in and take the land. Nope, we can't do it. So God says, fine, 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness until one generation passes on, and then the next generation will take the promised land. And so the Balaam story starts at the end of that 40 years of being in the wilderness wandering. 40 years later, they're finally poised to take the promised land. And, And this Balak... Different guy, there's two guys, Balaam, Balak, similar names, totally different people. Balak is the king of Moab. They've been watching this Israelite horde, and that's the word he uses, this Israelite horde wandering in the wilderness, and he goes, we need to do something about these people. We saw what they did to Egypt, we saw what their God did to Pharaoh, we don't want to do that, nor do we want to follow that God, therefore we need to do something. And so they call up their buddy, Balaam. And Balaam, you'll see, is an unlikely person because Balaam is going to come and he is going to bring a promise. He's going to bring a blessing to the people of Israel. And Balaam is one of the most unlikely people to bring a blessing. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've realized that I am the unlikely person 
in a situation. There have been times where I've found myself as a dad with three daughters in, in, in situations where I go, what am I doing here? I am the unlikely person. And I think we've all felt that way at some point in time in our life where we feel like we are in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. And I want you to know that the Israelites, despite their ignorance of God, despite their rejection of God time and time and time again, God continues to be faithful faithful to them and God continues to bring blessing on them. And he does so time and time and time again throughout scripture through some very unlikely people. And Balaam is one of those. Balaam is an unlikely person. He was an unlikely person to bring blessing. Numbers 22, starting there in verses 4 through 8, where our story begins. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde, see I didn't make that up, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pathor near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak has said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. And so here we have these people showing up at Balaam's house, and they bring with him this fee for divination. And he says something, Balak says something really interesting. He says, I know that whoever you bless, and he's saying this to Balaam, whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And we've heard that before. In Genesis, God said to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And so here Balak has taken that and turned it around and he's given all the power and credit to to Balaam, this, this pagan diviner. And he's saying, you come out, you are more powerful than God, you are stronger, you have the ability to bless and curse, come and curse them because I've seen how powerful their God is and there's nothing I can do to defeat him, so I need your help. So when we encounter Balaam the first time, we see him as a pagan diviner, as somebody who, who in his world is known as one who can control and manipulate the gods. And so Balak says, I need some help. I need to manipulate. I need to control this God of Israel. Would you come and do that? And Balaam, when we read the text, if we read the whole story, which we don't have time to read the entire thing this morning, it sounds at times like he is following God. He goes, I can only share what God has said. I'm sorry, I can't go with you. God has told me I can't. But in reality, if we read the whole story and and we read some other passages that shed some light on it, Balaam isn't following God. Balaam is trying to manipulate God. Balaam is trying to control God. Balaam is trying to show Balak that, oh yes, the God of the Israelites, I'm on good terms with the God of the Israelites. You want him cursed? I'll curse him. I can do that, don't worry. Because he doesn't share the whole message. When God comes to him and says, you can't go, you will curse, you will not curse, you will bless. He comes and says, I'm sorry, me and the God that I'm tight with said I can't go. He doesn't share the entire message. He holds back some truth 
trying to find a way to manipulate. If we jump ahead into Numbers 31, 16, we'll see that Balaam, when he finally comes to his wit's end and realizes that he cannot manipulate this God of Israel, he turns to Balak and he says, I can't manipulate their God, but you can manipulate their people. Go and get them as a people to follow your God, and then you can defeat them. You see, all the way through, his goal is not to follow God. All the way through, his goal is to manipulate and control God. And for Balaam, this is one of those times where he encounters a true God and doesn't know what to do. And we can see that, and this is where the talking donkey comes into the story. We can see that as he's on the road to give this blessing, and we can almost, in, we can almost hear in his mind the wheels turning of, how can I still turn this to my benefit? How can I still make this work for me? And God has to literally put an angel in front of him, if you take one more step, I will kill you. And the irony of the story is the pagan diviner who's supposed to be so close to the gods completely misses the angel and his stupid, stubborn, talking donkey donkey notices it. And his donkey, after he beats it again and again, turns to him and says, why do you beat me? I'm trying to save your life. And the, and, and the part of the story that baffles me the most, more than a talking donkey, what baffles me is if my donkey turned to me and talked to me, I wouldn't return the conversation. <laughs> and he turns to the donkey and he says, why don't you go where I tell you to do? And then he says, because there's an angel. And then his eyes are open and he realizes that he cannot control and manipulate this God. So he's an unlikely person. Numbers 24, 9, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. But Balaam still stands against God, an unlikely person to bring blessing. And so we're going to camp out a little longer in Numbers 24 when we actually get to the, the promise that we're going to focus on this morning. And starting in verse 15 of Numbers 24. Then he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are open. And I can't help but read the irony in all of those statements. And if I were to rewrite it, it would say this. One who sees clearly, but not by choice. One who hears the words of God and yet tries my best to ignore them. One who has knowledge of the Most High and yet I think I can control him. One who sees a vision and I'm going to try and hide it from others. And if I'm honest with myself, I see myself sometimes in Balaam. That I've had these encounters with a real and true God and yet there's part of me that wants to keep control for myself. And so Balaam, we see an unlikely person to bring blessing, just like if we were honest and looked at ourselves, we see unlikely people all throughout this building. But jump ahead, because his, 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 his passage goes on, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. God will use whomever necessary to bring about his plans. And this is true in the story of Balaam, and it's true in our Christmas story. The common Christmas story that we all know. In Matthew 2, because in Matthew 2, we see another group of people show up who are unlikely to bring blessing. And that's the Magi. 
who we forget because they're so intrinsic to our Christmas story that many of us have grown up with. We forget who the Magi really were when they encountered God for the first time. They were pagan astronomers. They were worshiping the stars when they encountered God for the very first time. And the Bible doesn't tell us very much about them, but I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 2, and we're going to read a little bit about them. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we know very little about them from this account in Matthew. We know they came from the east. We know they were wise men or magi. We know they came to King Herod and asked, where is this one born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We know that they saw a star and followed it. We know eventually, if you read the whole story, that they will come and bring their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how many magi. We know there were three gifts. We assume three magi, but we don't know. They bring their gifts, and then they're warned in a dream to not go back to Herod. And they leave through a different route. And so in some ways, the Magi are unlikely people to bring blessing to Jesus and his parents. In some ways, they're very similar to Balaam. They're both Gentiles, and they're both known to be close to the gods. But I would argue that that's where the similarity stops. And we see a lot of dissimilarity between how Balaam responds to an encounter with the real God and how the Magi respond. They stand out as significantly different from Balaam. They see a star, a heavenly sign, a sign from God, and they pursue God. They seek the truth. They follow. They travel in obedience. Balaam, it is assumed, is scheming as he travels on his donkey. They ask of Herod and Matthew, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and have come to worship him which leads to the final dissimilarity. They come seeking to worship. Their response to an encounter with the true God is worship. They listen to God and immediately obey, which tells me that God cares a lot more about how we respond to an encounter with him than about who we are. And if you read the gospel narratives, if you read the Old Testament, if you read God's story you'll see time and time and time again him using people who are completely unqualified and unlikely to bring about blessing to his people. It happens repeatedly. Unlikely people being used by God. The other thing we see here in the Balaam story back in Numbers 22 is God using Balaam, an unlikely person, in an unlikely place. And if you've ever found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know what that's like as well. I've been there. I think we all have. And, and, and Balaam finally arrives and he's overlooking the people of Israel and he stands up and he pronounces blessing over the people of Israel after having been paid to curse them. And the king comes up and says, and I'll paraphrase here, basically he says, why must you bless them? At least don't bless them. I paid you to curse them. Stop blessing them. And he keeps blessing them, and he keeps blessing them, and he keeps blessing them. And eventually he'll bless them seven times, which is a significant number in the Bible. And then we get to Numbers 23, verses 27 and 28. Then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. Yep. 
And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. And we'll see later on that he's still overlooking part of Israel. But they take him to this high mountain, and, and he says, maybe you can curse him from here. And what we don't get from this text, but what we can get from Numbers 25.3, Deuteronomy 4.3, Psalm 106.28, Hosea 9.10, is that this is a pagan shrine to Baal. He takes him to a spot that's closer to his God. Okay, you can't curse him from here. Come to my shrine over here and curse him. That'll work. And he takes him to this very unlikely place for God to pronounce blessing. A pagan shrine is an unlikely place to pronounce blessing over God's people. I've had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to stand in a place where people worshipped a different God. And I can tell you, it is not a place that I would encourage you to go. It is not a place that I want to go again. It's a very challenging place to stand. And yet I know confidently that my God owns that space. I know that confidently. A pagan shrine is not outside of his reach. The fact that he thinks that he can go stand on top of a mountain that he thinks is closer to his God gets him no farther away from the true God. And he stands on top of this mountain as a place of power overlooking the Israelite horde. And yet here God speaks. And I'm not saying that God wants us to go stand on high tops to other gods, but I am saying that God controls that space. It's not a fair fight. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the rhetorical question has a very clear answer, no one. Because no matter where you stand right now, God is there. And if that's a geographic space, maybe you're in a spot at your job, at your school, at your place of where you spend most of your life, that is a dark, challenging spot to stand. And I want you to know that God owns that place. And God owns that place. And if you're standing in a spot, maybe it's not geographic, maybe it's something to do with your family, history, or where you're at in history, it can feel like a challenging time, and God owns that space. And we'll see as we go through the life of Jesus, you look at his lineage in Matthew 1, and it is full of unsavory characters. And he lands in Bethlehem, a backwater town in a stable at an unlikely time in history. Bethlehem is an unlikely place as well for a blessing. Now, it's not exactly a pagan shrine, but it's not exactly a great birthplace either, especially in a stable. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And when the Magi stand in front of King Herod, that's the verse that they look at to send him to Bethlehem. So where are you at? What could you do, what could God do with you wherever you are? Physically and personally, perhaps you're in a good spot. Perhaps you're feeling really close to God and that's great. Perhaps you feel like you're in a pagan shrine and far from God. And God owns that place. And God can bring blessing to you as an unlikely person. And God can bring blessing to that place as an unlikely place through you. So we have an unlikely person in Balaam. And we have an unlikely place in a pagan shrine. And finally, 
we have an unlikely promise. So jump back to Numbers 24 and let's look at that promise. Then he spoke his message, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob. This is a now and a not yet prophecy as Balaam speaks it. Balaam speaks a now saying, Edom, Moab, as you try and manipulate God, I am telling you, you will be destroyed. That's the now part. But there's also this not yet. Balaam also sees a future king. The destruction of Moab is the start. The destruction of sin and evil is coming. Moab will grow weaker and weaker. Israel will grow stronger. This passage is seen by the Jews very early on as a passage about their coming Messiah. That's not an interpretation we bring to it. That's something that existed long before Jesus shows up. And there is some clear symbolism going on in this passage And that symbolism gets painted more clearly for us as we go through scripture. This whole Christmas promises series is taking a look at how God early on, starting back in Genesis, paints this this prophetic narrative of a coming Messiah that as you go through the Old Testament gets clearer and clearer and clearer and more specific and more specific. And by the time we get to it with Jesus, we can see that it points to Jesus. And as where we stand now, we can even see that symbolism in Revelation pointing to our future as a reminder to us. The scepter, the now. The scepter is the sign of the near future. It's the sign of judgment on Moab, Moab, Balaam, Balak, and all who currently stand opposed to God, which should serve as a warning to them, but doesn't. The not yet is that a new king will come who will hold the scepter for generations and Israel will grow strong. And it's a reminder that their God stands for them, despite how they stand with God. Israel has routinely rejected God, and yet God continues to fight for them. And for us, we can see the same scepter again in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Balaam sees what's coming in the future, and he sees a God who believes in justice. And he sees a God who believes in righteousness. And he sees a God who's going to stand with people even though they don't stand with him. And the scepter shows absolute authority and power, but it does not show vindictiveness, revenge, or lust for conquest. The scepter of God stands against injustice, not trying to win power for itself. Instead, the scepter of God is a faithful and true scepter, standing against sin and not trying to manipulate others.
And we see this scepter lived out in the life of Jesus, born at Christmas in Philippians 2, where it describes Jesus as being in the very nature of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so in Balaam's message, we see this kind of scepter. And we see Balaam and Balak rejecting it and walking away. And we see a star. The now in the Numbers 24 passage, the star is the sign of God's hand on their people. The sign that their God is the true God. The star is the symbol of a heavenly king. We also see a not yet in the star. A star is what sets the Magi out to seek out the king of the Jews and have the audacity to stand in front of a current king and say, where's the new king? The king ordained by heaven, the not you king. The one who has not taken power as Herod had, but the one who was born with power. And for us, we see that same star in Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The star of Jesus, the star at Christmas, stands there beckoning us to come to him. Whoever we are, wherever we are, the promise is we can come to this king and find peace and find justice and find truth. And like Balaam, we have the opportunity in how we're going to respond. Like the Magi, we have the opportunity to decide how are we going to respond. Are we going to respond to the king or against the king? We see in Christmas an unlikely promise of a coming heavenly king who arrived in a stable in the unlikely place of Bethlehem to unknown parents, a carpenter, a person who will die for the sins of the world, an unlikely unlikely ending to a heavenly ordained birth. And so our response should be the same as the Magi. We should seek to follow Christ, not try and hide from him. We should seek to hear Christ, and not try to keep his words to ourselves. And we should seek to worship Christ and not try to manipulate the gospel for our own ends. So let's stand and do some worship. 